VR is the ultimate empathy machine. The ultimate empathy machine. Empathy machine. Empathy. Noun. The action of understanding, being aware of, being sensitive to, and vicariously experiencing the feelings, thoughts, and experience of another. My name is Carol Tricky, and I'm a brand strategist. And my name is Angelica Ortiz. I'm an experience designer and creative technologist. And we're your hosts for the show Law Zero, a podcast about the implications, intended or otherwise, of emerging technology. Virtual reality has been applauded as the ultimate empathy machine. But we're asking ourselves, where does empathy end and encouraging action begin? There's an argument to be said about making sure that empathy is a part of your entire project, from its inception to making sure the design is accessible in the middle and all the way to the final project of making sure the UX is great. But before we get there, Angelica, could you help me define what VR is? Of course. VR, in a general sense, is being able to completely immerse someone in an environment on completely virtual things. So there's nothing of the real world that's in virtual reality for the most part. In terms of getting it up and running, virtual reality usually needs like a good gaming computer, like tower or a desktop, just because the processing and the graphics, like it's insane, man. And it also usually goes through a headset of some sort, like an HTC Vive, an Oculus, or Windows Mixed Reality. Now, one thing I also want to point out, because this confusion happens a lot in the industry is the difference between 360 video being called VR and then what the purists have been saying in terms of real VR. 360 video tends to live with like the Google Cardboards of the world, Samsung Gears of the world, and then real VR, quote unquote, tends to live with the more premium headsets like HTC Vive, Oculus, and Windows Mixed Reality. And in a technical sense, could you describe what the difference between those two are? Like, what is the difference between a Vive and a Gear? The biggest difference is that the Samsung Gear or Google Cardboard usually works on mobile device. So it's essentially this holder, per se, which is a Samsung Gear. And you put a, like, Galaxy S8 or whatever into the headset, and you're experiencing it that way. Okay. So it's a lot cheaper and more portable option to experience a version of VR, but it's usually not as high quality. So that's why there's real VR, where that's when you have the more premium headset. And it's it's made exclusively for that one action. So the quality is infinitely better. Correct. Yeah. Okay. That makes a lot of sense. Mm -hmm. So other than empathy, which is something that we're going to be talking about heavily here, what are the most common use cases that you're seeing for VR right now? So the biggest categories I see being used are entertainment, enterprise, education, marketing, advertising, real estate, slash interior design, they kind of merge together, and tourism. In advertising, we're sometimes told that there's a distinction between a product promise and a brand promise. And, you know, the product promise tends to be that, like, physical, tangible, practical use. And then that brand promise tends to be that more emotional uh, type of promise. And I was wondering if you could talk a little bit about the types of like what's being emotionally promised to people when they use VR, uh, when it's sold, that type of thing. Actually, the biggest selling point is that it's 
creates an immersive environment. Like that's the one thing that's like VR does super well is being able to transport people into a completely different place. So the first is world building. So like Ready Player One sort of things where you're able to just completely disengage from your current reality, but creating that sense of like you're being able to do what you want in an environment without any reprimanding or whatnot. It's like it's your just own thing. Pure creation. Yes. Pure control. Yes. Pure control and creation. Omniscience not guaranteed. Godlike powers, no godlike brain. Another part of it is creating a sense of place, as we like to say. And and that's the feeling of being completely immersed that you forget that you're in the real world technically. And that's why, like, the VR doorbell is a thing. Because if a friend is trying to be like, hi, we're here, hello, uh, just because of that immersion in that environment, you kind of need someone to be like, tap, tap, hi. So creating a sense of place, and that's obviously a little more effective when it's a well-done simulation. Right. Usually you don't have a sense of place if it's poorly done because then you're like, you're just looking at the flaws. And you know what's really funny? It's not even the quality of the picture, but which normally does help in most VR experiences. But the, what I've found interesting is a lot of people will actually also get lost in Minecraft. Minecraft in VR, mm-hmm. too, even though it's technically as low-quality graphics as you can get because everything's a giant block. Mm-hmm. But it's kind of like you are, you are that avatar, and I think that's what creates the immersion. Yeah, I thought it was cool that it's it's more about world building than it is about the quality of the world. Like, is it immersive? If there was anything where, like, you had the Minecraft, like, people, and then you had, like, a photorealistic 3D model of a human, you'd be like, what? What is this? And that takes you out of it. That takes away that sense of place. Right. So it's whatever you decide to do, you do it well. And then and that, consistently. Yes. And then that transports people. No, that makes a lot of sense. And... The last thing that is really often promised as far as VR is the big one. Empathy machine. We keep hearing that over and over and over again. It makes me think of the industrial era where whenever machine is like, it's just like pumping out empathy. And it's just like empathy doesn't work that way. Yeah. It's weird. But yes, it has been applauded as that empathy machine because you're able to actually see what someone else would see. You've got an immersive environment, creating world building, a sense of place, and it being promoted as an empathy machine. And I was wondering what you thought some of the tech implications were, whether positive or negative. Like, what what's your general feel for it? And then we can talk details. Cool. Let's start with the positive, and then we'll go into the negative because there's a lot of interesting stuff that goes on there. The, the positive implications is it helps with, like, educational instruction. So this has been used a lot more in terms of the 360. But it helps for, like, kids to actually being able to see what Mount Kilimanjaro would look like, able to see what, like, the Eiffel Tower would be like, and transporting them without having to, you know, like, buy the plane ticket. Yeah, and something else that's interesting is when you put kids in the VR environment is where someone like you or I, in our 20s, uh, we'd be more likely to draw something that's two-dimensional while we're in a 3D space. Uh, You give a vibe to a kid you know, somebody whose brain is still developing and they're more likely to draw an igloo as a 3D space and they'll draw over themselves instead and just kind of use their brain in a different way, flexing different muscles, which I thought was super interesting. Yeah, probably because their brains are still like plastic 
no, what's the word? We all have neuroplasticity. Neuroplasticity. Yeah, we all we all have more neuroplasticity than we give ourselves credit for. It's just about how you think about a space. But the younger you are, the more influenced you are by things. Correct. And the more open-minded you are. So Correct. like us in our 20s, we've been like told or we have this expectation of what the world is. And so we carry those even into the free realm of VR when mm-hmm. kids don't have those constraints as much. Right. The other cool thing about it is adding context. So a really cool example, more on the 360 side, is the New York Times VR app. Though, again, this isn't real VR, as the purists like to say. It's not with the Vive headset. It's through a mobile phone that you can still look around, but you're still doing it through the window of a tiny rectangle. But it's really cool because journalists are being able to curate a story and also visualize it. You don't have to just read about it and have to rely on the reader's ability to visualize. You can actually show them exactly what's happening. And that adds that sort of gravitas and depth to whatever you're talking about. And I really like it because I've been promoting this for a while, but journalism is really moving towards this radical transparency. It used to be oh, I'm impartial and therefore I'm not allowed to have an opinion and be human because none of us are a blank slate, no matter how hard we try. It it allows people to not only see your work, but it also allows them to compare your work to the video. And they say, wow, I do agree with how this person described it. It allows for this really radical transparency and it keeps you honest. It keeps you, it keeps it more real. The other Half positive, half negative about VR is the accessibility. So it is still technically financially feasible. So instead of, like I was talking about earlier, putting a a class of 20 kids on a plane to actually go to Rome, that's expensive. But if you're able to do that through like a Google Cardboard or even through real VR, it makes that a lot more accessible. And then the physical accessibility to it is also really cool and I can't even count how many articles I've seen over the past six months where they talk about bringing VR to retirement homes or to those who are physically disabled and actually can't move and being able to actually recreate memories of places that they had been or for people who had that bucket list and they never got to achieve it, they're able to achieve it through VR and being able to see these places. That's kind of funny because I don't know if I'd ever heard of that before. The guy on your AR panel telling a story about how one older gentleman who wasn't allowed to leave his retirement home or was was unable to leave his retirement home for some reason, he was able to be transported back to his hometown and see places he hadn't seen in many, many decades. Mm-hmm. And it just, like, he was like, I can't stop crying about it. And that actually feeds into getting into the negative aspects of things. Accessibility is still a problem. The financial accessibility only applies for institutions that have said, we're going into this and we're making that financial commitment. But on an individual level, it's still hard to reach just because for the average consumer, it costs at least $3,000 to get like a really good premium VR headset like HTC Vive and get all the accessories and the gaming desktop and then have the space like there's so many factors that it just seems out of reach for the average consumer at this point yeah less than half of Americans have access to three thousand dollars in their savings account yeah. and so to completely empty their savings into one thing it's not exactly reasonable 
it's a hard sell right now. Yeah. But there have been strides in terms of making it more affordable, but it's taking a while because the hardware is expensive. But that just goes to show that accessibility is comparative, where for a large organization, $3,000, easy, done, totally accessible. But for the individual basis, it's still kind of tough. And because it's not accessible to the average consumer, but a lot of the times it is more financially feasible for larger institutions. The biggest concern I had, are people going to make things less physically accessible because technically there is an alternative to being physically in a school or physically in a workplace? Is VR going to, quote unquote, solve for accessibility when really it's different? It just compounds the problem. Yeah. When we had the really fortunate opportunity to go to a conference called VR for Good, which we were really excited for. Because we thought it would be like, oh, cool, we're thinking about the podcast. Like, it'll give us like really good examples to play off. And I was very excited about what I saw, but I some of it left me with a lot of concerns, like a lot of our podcasts. Mm-hmm. And there was one person who was an Oculus employee, and I, I asked them, do you think people are going to attempt to make physical spaces less ADA compliant or less physically accessible because technically VR is a viable substitute? Is there a kid that's not going to be able to go to school just because they live in a neighborhood that is less convenient than other kids? And their answer was that they hoped that they never saw that day. But then the following question was about Facebook spaces and using it for education, and they didn't see any parallels to that either. It's like those little steps along the way that while you're taking those little steps, you don't see how in the big picture it could actually affect the larger whole. Where's the line that we're going to draw? Right. There's someone that I know that uses a motorized scooter to get around. And uh, she was talking about her experience seeing people try to make the Anne Frank house come to reality in VR. There are a lot of people that when they saw this Anne Frank thing, they thought that, wow, this is really great. It's making things accessible. And this one friend of mine said, well, it's not quite the same as being physically in the house. Yes, it's really cool. Yes, it's really interesting. But that should not make it any less difficult for them as somebody who uses a scooter to get around to have access to it. It's a different experience. We need to make sure that institutions don't use VR as a excuse to not make things ADA compliant. Yeah. So we've talked a lot about the tech behind virtual reality and how it comes to life and then also how it affects us for better or for worse. But I'm also kind of curious about how this goes into the overall arching theme of empathy. Like, what do you see in terms of the cultural implications of us using virtual reality for empathy Most of my cultural implications, I have some negative cultural implications and I've also got some questions where it's just like, we'll wait and see type of thing. But the first one that comes straight to mind, and I can kind of see it happening even now, is I worry that people attaching VR and empathy together, it deadens us to empathy in real life. You know, on some level, people are going to be using things to manipulate others' emotions. But you're it's poverty porn or you're selling somebody's sad, sad story. You shouldn't have to walk a mile in that person's shoes to feel that empathy, right? Right. It's using the 
modality purposefully in that it's like, oh, we need people to feel something. Let's use VR. It's like, are there better ways of getting that same emotion that aren't also traumatizing? You know, it's like the balance of things. Right. And doing it respectfully and do it like just making sure that what you do in AR or VR is no different than what you would do in real life. Right. Right. Exactly. My second concern is that often these experiences that I've seen make us feel bad, but then they don't really give us anything to do with that emotion. And empathy in small doses is a good thing, but in the grand scheme of things, it actually can make us irrational. And unless you're trying to change an individual's mind about a cultural topic that they should care about, most changes are made on either a policy or a cultural level rather than on the individual level. And that's something that we should keep in mind going forward. I think there's something to be said of making sure that empathy is not a commodity and it's using it when appropriate and needed the most. Right, because otherwise it just it's a bad move for the brand to begin with. But even for a good cause, making sure that it's handled well. Right, because I think even when we were thinking about this topic as something that we should talk about on our podcast, empathy has been used so much that we've become desensitized to the word. Or we just have felt so much. It's just like, what should I be feeling now? I think that's exactly it. I can see people leaving VR and not trying to do it again because they know uh, they have the Sarah McLaughlin kind of reaction to it. They're like, oh, no, no, I I'm, I shut that off immediately. They, I know exactly how that ASPCA ad is going to make me feel, and I don't want to feel that. If we're not careful, it could even drive people away from it entirely. Right. Like VR is the it makes me feel bad modality. On your point of figuring out what to do with the emotion that we're feeling in terms of empathy, one good example that I saw was a experience with the VR museum when you're able to see all these priceless works of art like you could see the Mona Lisa and actually get like super up close without the alarm bells going weep weep you know you're able to see the crisp detail all in one building and to support that cause there was actually a donation box that was in the experience and you could like put in a coin to like donate and it kind of seemed like a cute micro interaction so it's like oh Cool. I'll just like put this coin in there. But once you got out of the experience, there was actually a browser pop-up that prompted you to actually donate in real life to the cause that had created the VR museum. So it's like using that experience that you had gained from experiencing all those priceless works of art and paying it forward for the next person to experience or even using that money to promote real life art exhibits as well. It sounds like you had a good experience with the VR museum, and it sounds like you were able to take some of your emotions, whether that was awe or it was intrigue, and uh, gave you an action, which was donate the money. So you had that input of emotion, output of action. But something else you should know about empathy is that if you don't give people that output, that option to act based on their emotions, it can actually make us sick. Most people... We inherently know that emotional health is somehow tied to physical health, but we actually know that if you feel unhappy, and if you feel unhappy more often, you are more likely to get sick. Another thing to consider in terms of empathy being used for VR in particular is that 
when empathy is pushed around and like you need to feel empathy for this or that or the other thing is it promoting sameness rather than a healthy debate especially because VR experiences are so powerful because they can immerse you so deeply in an experience that it would it act similarly to that gun in Hitchhiker's Guide to the Galaxy at least in the movie I'm I'm trying to remember if it was in the book or not but the the main characters they had a moment where they found like this gun where if you uh point in and blasted someone with it it would actually make what you were feeling and thinking into that other person's head so they instantly understood where you were coming from and so it kept going back and forth in between the characters so it's just kind of like a funny debate there but if vr experiences that promote empathy are like that like when you when you push someone to experience and they're like instantly understand where you're coming from and they're like wait but no I have an experience for you to understand where I'm coming from you know like is it that weird back and forth I think I'm I think I'm less worried about it promoting sameness because it feels like a filter on top of people's already established experiences you I mean we know that no person is a perfectly blank slate but I do think that you would probably start seeing over and over again the ex- VR experiences, if that not only if they are all trending towards empathy, but also the same type of em- empathy, you know, everybody will look the same or everybody will have a very similar setup or have, you know, that type of thing. Um, empathy is powerful, but and so is nostalgia, but we shouldn't be hitting those buttons all the time. Right. It becomes the commodity like we discussed. The other thing I wonder about VR in that in our our previous podcast um, with social VR and dating, we discussed like actually being able to go to Paris in VR when you're unable to do so because of um, not enough money because we're grad students. <laughs> <laughs> you're not wrong. You're really you're not wrong. The struggle is real. Will there be a a stigma for people who saw Paris in VR rather than I actually went to Paris. I actually spent the money. Like, I deserve more credit than you. On the flip side, are people going to say, I visited Paris, I saw the Eiffel Tower in VR, and I'm smarter than you because I didn't pay as much money? Like, there's like this weird need to prove your frugalness sometimes. I could see it leaning both ways at different times that's kind of neat right could you tour the world without ever really leaving your home but man wouldn't that be a hit on the tourism industry if you're not actually spending money in those places then ugh, that's terrible unless those places creating the actual place and getting money from visiting them virtually instead of physically oh okay it's like for example the Office for Tourism of Paris would create a VR recreation of Paris and then monetize that for people to visit in VR so they still have that steady stream of income. I think, yes, they could benefit from having the tourism department do some sort of VR. It's better than having nobody come at all or having a third party do that. But places especially that don't have other experiences like to smell, to touch, to feel, to be a part of, I think it'll hurt those places worse, but also I think it'll encourage everybody to up their game. 
you know? If all you have to offer, well, I say all, if the thing that you have to offer is almost nearly exclusively visual, does that mean you need to incentivize people to up their cooking game? Does that mean you need to incentivize people to do work in other areas to get people to visit your town? I had actually considered, like, food as something that VR doesn't do very well. That's just on my brain. No, but that's actually a fair point because there's so many, like, cultural dishes Mm -hmm. that, like, even if I could visit Paris in VR, I would never be able to taste a French baguette. But on a slightly different note, I wonder how the VR experience could change even people's religious or spiritual experiences. Muslims who are trying to attempt the pilgrimage to Mecca. Is the pilgrimage really a part of the process or is seeing Mecca the spiritual experience all on its own? Is seeing it in person the important part or is seeing it at all important even the most important? And I think that's kind of a that's more of a question than an answer. I don't know. Right. Like what constitutes a replacement or like you were saying earlier in terms of frugality um, and being able to experience these? Is it something that it's a luxury to be able to physically go to these places? And there's no excuse now to you not to make the pilgrimage to Mecca because you have that option. But how much would it be to go to a place to experience VR? How much would it be to purchase the experience on the store? And would it be substantially lower? Is it still accessible? Like, because this isn't really a thing right now, it's kind of hard to really argue for or against it, but it's definitely something to think about. So those are my main concerns and questions that I have culturally. What about the wish list? Do you have anything that people should walk away with, keep in mind as they're interacting with either empathy or VR? So while I'm known at Brand Center as being like the tech person, I am also a very big proponent of using tech when it is called for or when it makes sense. So this is also something to be applied for VR and empathy. Don't use VR for the sake of tech or for the sake of empathy. It needs to have a purpose. It needs to have some sort of guiding principle that it makes sense because consumers can easily tell when it's just an add-on and it doesn't make any sense. So going forward, there's something we need to consider in terms of what are other ways that we could promote empathy that are more responsible or that maybe even cost less Like, because VR is still expensive to develop for. So is it like for particular instances, VR does make sense, but don't just do VR to do it. Think about why. Don't just do it because it's also the hip thing and everybody has a VR experience. Like they might also be turning people off of VR forever. They, you know, people might not be doing it well just because they're doing it. Well, on my list is make sure you don't cheapen the experience. Don't do anything in VR. Wouldn't encourage in real life. I know Art Glass USA is an example of a company that is trying to do an AR experience with George Washington leading you on a tour of either his childhood or adult or adult home. And I feel like they've done a really good job of keeping it real and also keeping it respectful because there's a lot of heavy stuff that you're going to be talking about when you're talking about one of the founding fathers. And that being said, making sure you keep empathy in the entire process from the very beginning, uh, the accessibility in the middle, and all the way to the end, make sure that your heart's in the right place. And the last thing that we should consider is what you mentioned earlier in terms of 
giving us a direction, giving us some sort of actionable item to do with our feelings. What all do we the feelings. Do? Yes. All the feels. What do we do with all the feels? Those sort of things. Um, where is the call to action? Whether that action is calling your senator, giving your time, giving money, whatever that action is, giving people to something to do with those feelings is a right step. Overall, we've been hammering this in for the past uh, 20 or so minutes in terms of be smart about what you're designing and use empathy when it makes sense and don't just throw it around like a commodity. Make sure it has action and purpose so we don't ruin the medium altogether. This has been Law Zero. To our fellow geeks out there, don't forget to subscribe. You can find us on SoundCloud at Law Zero Podcast. Plus, we're on iTunes. You can also find us on Twitter under the same name. We're relatively new to the podcast game, so we'd love to hear your thoughts and suggestions. We'd also like to thank my brother, Ben Tricky, for the use of his composition, Take Two, as our theme song. I can be found on Twitter at Angelica Ortiz underscore one. I can also be found on Twitter at Carol Tricky. Carol with an E and Tricky with an EY. Thanks. <laughs>